That's how awesome you are. This morning I want to speak about something that I don't normally talk that much about. Um, I'm, I'm not somebody who is a, a kind of rah-rah, kick-the-drum, motivational type of speaker. I really believe that we should build our lives on solid, substantial foundations that we get from the Word of God. And so I believe more in kind of a line-upon-line, precept-upon-precept, uh, faithful from day-to-day -day walk with God. But I do, I do feel like there's things that sometimes I've benefited from in my life that I must share with you because it's too good not to share. And so I want to speak about victory yeah. today. And I want to talk about one key to victory. Just, just one key to victory. It's not the key, it's a one of the keys to victory. There are probably seven keys to victory, which is why I don't always seem to have victory. <laughs> I don't know all the others, you know, I know some of them, but, you know. And if I ever write a book, don't worry, I'm not trying to sell you my book, but if I ever write a book and I, I say seven keys to victory, just burn it straight away because that would clearly be contrived because there might be four keys or a hundred, we don't really know. But this one key I want to speak about today will definitely change your life if you use it. And I'm going to start with a passage of scripture in the book of Judges in chapter 3. So I'll pray and then let's look at that passage together. Heavenly Father, as we gather around your word this morning, I ask that by your spirit you would speak into our hearts and transform our lives. Change the way we think today, Lord, so that we can be more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So starting with Judges chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. How's, how's that? Like, this is after Joshua has taken the land and we've got a whole bunch of uh, people who don't actually know much about war. You would think that's a cool thing, that's a good thing. I mean, peace and just sitting back and enjoying things. And God intentionally left enemies in the land to test Israel because they hadn't experienced the wars in Canaan. And then in Judges 3 verse 3, it's listed, these are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hevites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. I don't know how to pronounce these words, but it's clearly like these are the nations God's prepared and He's left them and they go from here to here, and I'll explain a bit more about that. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So that's the passage I want to examine and then draw a few thoughts out of there today. Three things I want to speak about. How we forget, how we forget and how we get frustrated by God, and then how we fight. Because what happens for many of us is that we, we learn some things along the way and then we forget them. Or one generation knows them and then the next generation doesn't know them anymore. And so God does something to intervene and that's frustrating. 
and then that trains us in a way to fight. And so firstly, how we forget. Well, Peter Howard Brown, who was kind of the apostolic father of this church and the work that we do here in Madagascar through TCC, um, he spoke once at a conference here many years ago, and he explained that when we disregard what we've received, and we disregard old things, we're actually immature because we're running after new things and undervaluing lessons that we've already learned and things that should still apply. So he says old and new gifts, old and new truths are required today. So the idea behind that is it's possible that you forget because you get distracted. So you start running after something fresh when actually there's something old and simple that you should be holding on to. We also forget sometimes in our longevity as Christians, when we've been believers for a long time, we might become familiar and complacent. For example, spiritual warfare. There are lessons we learned that were real and valuable years ago maybe, but the devil is still real today. So while you might not be facing the battles when you first learned to fight, but you've got into this place of peace and now you've got complacent, that the devil is still actively around. As someone once wrote in the 80s, uh, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. Uh, that was one of those books that should also probably not be read. Um, but uh, there are lessons that you learn about how to contend with the devil and then when he goes away and comes back at a more opportune time, the problem is you forget and then when the crisis comes later, you don't remember some of the ways that you used to know. For example, faith and healing, miracles, those things still hold true. God does heal and we should pray with faith. But sometimes the Western churches become sophisticated, so they don't believe in demons and angels and deliverance and healing and miracles. They just think, just give us a, a, a comfortable Sunday. Just, yeah. just give us just something to make us feel respectable, like we're good people, we went to church on Sunday, and don't challenge us with anything too spooky. And yet, and yet, Part of this comes out of a, even a correction against excesses that took place in restoration moves of God. So take, for example, the charismatic renewal. It was an authentic move of God, but it was also contaminated by some, or corrupted by some excesses where people did crazy things, and some people are still doing crazy things in the name of the charismatic church. I mean, in South Africa, there's this guy that takes insecticide and sprays it in people's faces. I don't know how that comes into the church. What is the biblical point of that? It's, to me, that's the enemy actually trying yeah. to make people chuck out the whole of the charismatic yeah. renewal because yeah. of one crazy guy. Yeah. And that's sometimes what television ministries have done. They've exaggerated things so that people are actually turned away and they say, no, we don't want to be part of that. But nevertheless, what are we forgetting? We're forgetting that our God is a God who does miracles. We're forgetting that God is a God who heals and delivers and He intervenes. And this is why I want to speak a bit about victory. So when we forget, we move away into perhaps our comfort zone. The second thing that you find in Scripture is that God frustrates us. He leaves enemies in the land. There are battles to fight for every generation. 
So no matter what stories I carry, it's not good enough for the younger generation to hear my stories. They need to be fighting their battles and developing their own stories. So if I had my way, every person here who's between 10 and 25, in 10 years time, should have stories of the miracles of God yeah. that they experienced in their lives. Yeah. I can only give you my stories, I can't, but you need to experience your own. So God does this on purpose. He leaves enemies in the land and He creates battles for you to fight. I'd go so far as to say God actually also plans some of your failures. He actually plans that you will fail in certain circumstances. For example, the disciples who've been gladly casting out demons got very distressed when they encountered one that they couldn't cast out. And then they came running back to Jesus, having failed. And Jesus went and cast out the demon, because he never fails. And there's a lesson to learn in your failure, that God will sometimes put a situation in your path that trips you up so that you fall back upon Jesus, so that you turn back to Him. Anyway, that's not my message. So, here there are these enemies left in Canaan. And I want you to see that your crises, the crisis that your life encounters from time to time, is actually carefully curated by God. In other words, what happens in your life when calamity strikes, God has actually sovereignly allowed some of those trials to come upon you. So He's, if you like, everything in our lives is Father filtered, it's filtered through the hand of God's grace. So that nothing comes upon you that would actually destroy you, but only things that God has intended to make you stronger. The Canaanites weren't left in the land to destroy Israel, they were left there to make the next generation stronger. And this actually is a finite selection. That's why Judges 3 verse 3 says, These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines. All the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebohamath. Very, very defined. Very clearly counted. Very clear boundaries. God has determined the size of the crisis that you're going to face. He's determined... The, 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 the scale of the fight. In other words, he's rigged it so that you can win. That's God's plan for life. He's actually rigged it so that even in your worst moment, he's going to do something that works for redemption and works to strengthen you. So another way to put it is God has prepared fights for you. And what's the point of this? Well, it's not to see how good you are at fighting. It's not to see how strong you are in your own strength. It's not to see how skillful you are at, like, um, I don't know, throwing spears. I mean, Israel, they were going to fight Canaanites, literally. So this is both like metaphor, but also literal. They're going to go and physically go to war with people. And they're going to have battles and skirmishes, and they're going to have bloodshed. There's going to be violence. So you would think, is God trying to show them how to be like... Uh, Gladiator, you know, the best fighter in the arena. And actually, that's not what it's about. What God wants to teach you, and what the battle is for, is to see whether you've studied His Word and learned His ways. Because here we have it in Judges 3 verse 4. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. That's weird. 
So that's the test of the battle, to see whether you will obey the word, the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded through their fathers by the hand of Moses. You see the, the reference there to the previous generation. It's something God said long ago that Israel might have forgotten, was that if you follow me, you're going to do well. If you go your own way in your own strength, you're going to be defeated. So the test is not your strength, the test is your obedience. The test is not your skill, the test is your sensitivity to walk with God. The victory doesn't come from you, the victory comes from God. And so this is what I want you to see because this leads me into understanding how we fight. Judges 3 verse 1 says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel. By them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. So if you're a young believer, you've got to learn to fight. If you're an old believer and you've forgotten how to fight, you've still got to fight. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So what, what we're always seeing this passage referring to what Moses gave to your fathers and what the previous generation did and experienced. So what, what was that? What actually happened before this passage was written in the book of Judges? Well, what we know is Moses was in the wilderness and he was following God and then Mo Moses was called to meet with God and he went up a mountain and God gave him the, the law for Israel and he took down those stone tablets and you know it was a bit of a process to get the law to the people because the people were so idolatrous and that's the start of it. God's revealing himself to his people and then he's giving them instructions and he starts by kind of suggesting that there's a new way to live your life. This new way is God's way. It's not the ways the rest of the world operates. It's here are new rules for life. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson just wrote some as well. They're also very good, but they're not nearly as good as the originals. So here's God's rules for life. If you learn about me and you walk in obedience to me, things are going to go well. If you disobey me and you go your own way, things are going to go badly. That's the Deuteronomy, choose life, choose blessing. I set before you blessing and curse blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. God's got a new program for you to follow. The thing what we don't realize, the thing we don't really understand about God is that His ways are not our ways. In other words, His ways are so far above and so counterintuitive at times that it doesn't really work that well to try to totally second guess God and figure it all out for yourself. Sometimes you just have to say, okay God, you're showing me something and I, I'm just going to obey and I'm going to discover along the way what happens when I obey. And so Moses was given God's instructions for Israel and then came Joshua and the generation of faith that would go and possess the land. I love the analogies here that God has for each one of us in a sense an inheritance and to each one of us like Joshua he will say be strong and courageous and go in and take possession of the land but in every step like he said everywhere your foot will tread I'll give to you so it's an inheritance we're not in a sense earning it we're receiving it but in order to possess it there were also these huge battles to fight and I feel like God for us as believers he wants us to learn to win battles. He wants us to fight and discover that we can rule over this area of our life or we can pray for somebody who's sick and see them healed or we could um, 
find peace in the midst of circumstances that only offer hopelessness. God wants us to get to a place of strength in all the situations that we go through. And so that to me also over the years of my life walking with God has been part of the victory is just knowing that I can be at peace even when circumstances are far from ideal. Knowing that I don't have to panic, knowing that I don't have to unravel and fall apart just because things seem to be going very badly. So in a sense, part of this victory is also an understanding that God is in control, that I can be a bit more like Jesus and sleep in the boat while there's a storm. It still doesn't come naturally to us though. So the land had to be taken. So the land had to be taken. So here we ask the question then, um, how does God operate? Why is he testing Israel with these Canaanites and other enemies to see if they will obey God's word? Not Well, it goes to the question of how you fight the fight. Is the land taken by force? No. By skill? No. See, Zechariah 4 verse 6 and 7, totally different scripture, but it starts to, it starts to explain some of the... Um, why that went off. One, two, I'm back. I don't know where that went. Um, just looking, but the demon's invisible. You know, sometimes you have, uh, what if they call it, the co it's a very common, like a common cold. You also have a common sound system demon in most churches. Anyway, um, in Zechariah 4 verse 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. That means the mountain will be smashed and leveled. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. That's a declaration of praise in victory. It's the, the, the top stone, I guess, is probably a reference to Christ ultimately. But in a sense... What we see is God saying, it's not by military strength, not by physical might, not by power, which is political intrigue or your skillful cunning. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that these things get accomplished. So this is one of the ways of God, that victory doesn't come through like your strength, your force, your might. It doesn't come through power that you don't do or don't have skill or cunning or intrigue or how, you know, politically sensitive you are to figuring out the nuances of what's going on in the situation. God says, none of that is how the victory comes. The victory comes by His Spirit. In other words, it comes from God. It's God's victory. So at this point, I would say the battle is the Lord's belongs to Him. He's promised us victory when we follow Him in obedience to His Word. So this is how it played out in that generation. There was this generation that Judges is referring to, where Joshua, after Moses, led Israel into the Promised Land, and they started the battles. And they began to fight, and their first place they went to go and conquer was Jericho. And Joshua goes to Jericho, and he waits on the Lord, and you're looking at this city and its walls go 
high, high, high like a mountain. They're, they're massive walls. Apparently Jericho was very fortified. There was no way that Israel was strong enough to do a, a, a military assault and take Jericho. Nevertheless, God's commanded them. You've got to go and you've got to possess the land and you've got to fight this battle. So they're like probably trying to muster up their courage to go and get into this battle. And I think I'm right about this, that Jericho, you could even like ride a chariot on the wall. So it was a, it was a very broad, very strong wall. And God says, march around the city and then, you know, march around the city and march around the city. And like in formation, so you get into this kind of like, a, I don't know, kind of order and you go around there and then on the seventh time or whatever it was like, you know, do it seven times and, and then raise a ruckus like cheer and shout and blow the trumpets and whatever, you know the story. And so when Joshua went to fight Jericho, he went in and effectively had a praise party. It's like it must have looked unbelievably silly, so daft. To the, to the guys in Jericho, even up on the walls, looking at them, here's these guys marching around the city with tambourines. I mean, really, that's the picture. It's like you're going with a trumpet. Like, I would want at least an AK-47. <laughs> but God says, take a tambourine and a trumpet. I would like at least a Nissan patrol like I drive in Madagascar. I could, you know, yeah. with strong bull bars. It's a good car, but God says, no, wave a flag, like, like a girl. Like, I mean, I don't know, I'm not into the feminization of worship or anything, but really it, it was a picture of people who were saying, we will follow God's instructions, and God says, the battle is mine, and the victory doesn't come by your strength or your might or power, but by my spirit. And so you go in there and you praise God, and you praise Him loudly, and you yeah. look stupid to everybody else. <laughs> and then what happens? The walls come down. More. The walls come down. And like, like uh, that Zechariah text, the mountain is made level. And Israel just goes in there and takes Jericho. What a, what a picture. What a way to fight. So this is, I think, why when God says in Judges, through His Word, that He left Canaanites to battles to be fought, not so that he could see how strong Israel was, but so that they could see how strong he is. So that they would go back to the ways of God and figure out how is it that God works when I'm in battle. Not how must I win this battle, but how is it that God works when I'm in a battle. And so these next generation guys and judges, they would see that if you Read the word, study what Moses taught Israel. God's saying, I will give you victory if you put your trust in me. And the greatest way you can tell God you trust him is if you praise him. If you praise him, if you say, God, you're amazing. God, you are in control. God, you rule over all things. God, I put my eyes upon you. God, I'd look above this situation and I see you seated on the throne. There's no one who is in authority but you. There's no one who has all power but you. And then this other thing that you're facing, what is it? It's nothing in God's eyes. And so to me, this is a, a kind of a way you begin to see the, the way that God works. His ways are different from our ways. He expects you to fight battles, but not to fight with this 
physical, like I've got to get it right, I've got to be strong enough, I've got to have the skills. No, he's saying you've got to have an understanding of how God gives you victory. This happened again in the New Testament. Lest you think it's just Jericho that I'm using as an example of how God works. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 25 and 26, it says to us a bit about Paul and Silas who are in prison because they've been put in prison after speaking the gospel. People weren't happy with them because they cast out a demon and destroyed somebody's um, income. And so they said, you guys are making trouble in the town. We prefer witchcraft to this stuff. You go in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. There you are. You're in prison. You're utterly like overwhelmed by your circumstances. You're trapped and you're not strong enough to break out. There are bars around you. And sometimes your life can feel like that, even though you're not in a physical prison. But you could be facing circumstances that are absolutely beyond your control and way too strong for your strength. So what are Paul and Silas doing? Praying and singing hymns to God. The singing hymns part intrigues me because if I, if I was in prison, I would probably be like, Oh God, protect me. I'm so afraid. I'm scared of what these guys are going to do to me. Help me, Jesus. But they're singing hymns. And it actually says the prisoners were listening to them. So they're not singing under their breath like, you know, bind us together, Lord. Bind us together. Oh, you have. Um, all in silence, you know. And verse 26 says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So we should be singing, unbind us, Lord. But there, there it is. It's just like Jericho. It's just like when the people started to praise God, God did something that they could never have done in their strength. And there were times in my life where this idea was put to the test and proved to be true. So I think this is where we begin to see the application in our own lives because we see a pattern in scripture but then what we have to do is say well God if this is really one of your ways then this is how God works, this is how he operates then I want to try that in my life. I want to try to test God and follow his example, his word teaches me. So, complain, cry, or praise God? That's the question. Complain, like one of the two spies, we can't possibly defeat the enemies, that, I mean like one of the, like the ten spies, we can't possibly defeat those Canaanites, they're too big and they're too strong. Or actually be like Joshua and Caleb and say, there's an opportunity. God can do something. There's milk and there's honey. Even though there's giants, we see beyond the giants. So, our human nature is just to actually complain. It's just to say, oh, my circumstances are too big for me. And of course, you've got facts on your side. You're right. I mean, Paul and Silas in prison. There's no Marvel comic book moment there for them. There's not a Hulk 
that they suddenly become. And that's the problem. When you, when you face real life, you can legitimately say, these problems are too big for me. You may be unemployed, maybe you just failed an exam, and you look at that result and you can't change your report card. I've experienced that personally, where I've looked at a dismal set of university results. I failed three out of the three courses that I wrote, and I looked at it, and I mean, how do you respond in that moment? Well, you have some existential crisis, like where is my life heading? Am I going to be as, you know, a guy on the side of the road doing, you know, street cleaning or um, begging or whatever? Because that's what my report card's prophesying. That's what my exam results are speaking over my life. And I think that the moment comes then you can go to God in self-pity. You go to God and say, ah, oh, my life really sucks. Look at this. I'm useless. Um, I failed again. I don't know how I'm ever going to get through this. And then you can kind of just bemoan your case before God like faithless, faithless, hopeless, useless, and completely not how God wants us to respond. Completely nothing like what God wants from us when we face a crisis. You could look at your marriage. And you could say, I'm really not happy about this and this and this. And then you go in prayer before God and you start telling Him, I'm really not happy about this and this and this in my life. I'm really not happy with this person and how they treat me or what they're doing. Or, and you're just complaining. You're just complaining. Or maybe it's worse and you feel utterly devoid of hope because you know you can't fix this thing. So then you just cry. You cry before God, oh, my life is a mess. Oh, God, what am I supposed to do? It's faithless and it's hopeless when you do that. Just complaining to God, just crying about the crisis you're in or the circumstances you face is insulting to God because you're acting in a way where you don't believe that Jericho walls could come down. You don't believe that prison doors could open. You don't believe that God is that great. And God's asking us to believe in Him. As Christians, we could call ourselves believers. But some of us are more like not believers. We're more like we don't really think God will do something. And so we pray in a way as if we're just asking God, but not expecting God to do something. We're asking God for something, but inside we're feeling like it's, it's, it's hopeless, it's, it's helpless, I can't do it. And as I say, the facts are with you, you can't do it, but He can. So I, I, I ask you this question, complain, cry, or praise God, because you have to change the way that you approach the battles in your life. Even the horrible things. And listen, I'm not a masochist. I don't like inflicting pain on myself. I, I, I don't... So if I go before God and I'm in a... My child is sick. And I'm praying, God, please heal him. Like, I'm not loving that experience. I'm not enjoying the feeling of helplessness that a parent feels when a child is sick. And then God says, give thanks in all circumstances and 
praise me even in your darkest hour. And I think, are you insane, God? It's the last thing I feel like doing. And then the Holy Spirit will start challenging me and say, you can trust God, therefore you can praise Him. You can trust God, therefore you can praise Him. So what I discover then is as I hold, you know, that, that struggle, that battle inside me, my child is sick, I prayed for him to be healed, he's still got a fever, whatever, and I think, I must do the most counterintuitive thing and start praising God. And I'll sit in there, either with the child in the room or on my own where no one can see me because I'm not singing loudly in the prison yet. But I'll start saying, God, I thank you that you're in control. God, I praise you for this crisis. I praise you right now that you have a plan to do something good. I praise you, God, that even in the suffering, you're working redemptively. I praise you, God, even if things don't go the way I want, mm -hmm. that you're in control and you are going to bless me, full stop. Because that's the covenant that I have with God, that He will bless me because I have covenanted with Him. Jesus has opened up the way for the blessings to flow. Every promise is yes and amen. It yeah. doesn't mean a life without pain. It means a life with promise and hope and yeah. conviction that God yeah. is for us. Yeah. And so over this crisis I'm facing, I say, God, you're on your throne. Mm. God, I worship you. I want yeah. to be like Job, who would say, even if Come you on. slay me, yet will I yeah. praise you. Yeah. And that's spiritual warfare. Yeah. That's where you start to say, I'm speaking faith in God. Yeah. Not faith in faith. Not like, I have enough faith, so I'll fix this. Yeah. No, faith in the character of God that says, in this moment, I will praise Him. Yeah. I just crashed my car. I will praise Him. I just lost my job. I will praise Him. I just noticed I've got an injury again. I will praise Him. I'm not going to complain, God, oh, why can't you make me better? I sometimes say that, but then I'll catch myself and say, no, God, I want to lift up your holy name over my circumstances. And I want to declare that you reign in majesty, power and glory over my life. And there is no other who controls my life. It is not as if the devil can take me out of your hand. Because no one can take you out of God's hand. Neither death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor things in this present age or things to come. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I probably butchered that because I'm not that good at remembering scripture. But I know it's written something like that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So if you're in the prison, you're not separated from the love of God, so you can sing hymns yeah. at midnight. Yeah. So I ask you, how do you obtain victory? Trust God, praise Him, and see the deliverance of your God. Sometimes it will still be painful, but when you look back after years, you will say, God, you have been nothing but good. You've done nothing but good in my life. So that is part of our walk as believers that we have to learn to walk in victory to walk in victory doesn't mean that you control your circumstances it means that you worship the one who is in control Amen. and so i i've come to a place where i i live now at times in the middle of terrible things happening in circumstances around me and i'm thinking god i'm not afraid i'm scared as anything but i'm not afraid about the long-range outcome i'm terrified of this moment but 
actually, God, I'm not afraid because you're yeah. on the throne. You reign, you rule, you command everything. Yes, you and that's it. Go back to sleep in peace. You can't fix it. You can't change it. You can put your head on the pillow and sleep like Jesus did in the boat because Jesus knew he was in control. Our Father in heaven, his name is hallowed. His will be done. His kingdom will come. His reign will extend. I don't know if that will destroy me in the process. It's okay if it does. God will work it out for good. So that's why we should praise Him. Part of our victory. It's a path to our victory. It's a key you need to use in prayer. So I'm going to close now. The band can come up. We're going to worship this great God. I'll tell you this. Our prayers reflect the level of trust we have in God. I don't pray because I think God is forgotten. I don't pray harder because I think God is deaf. I pray because I'm declaring my trust in God. It shifts my eyes from the hopelessness of my condition to the one in whom I have full reason to hope. So when you're in a fight, praise. Praise God. What is it that you've been anxious about? What is it that you've been facing? What is it that looks like a mountain or a wall of Jericho in your life? Praise God in the face of those things. Praise God over those circumstances. Give Him thanks in every situation. Won't you stand and let's worship God together.